After 15 years of proportional representation, New Zealanders will get the chance later this year to decide whether to retain the MMP electoral system. MMP, or the Mixed Member Proportional System, brought an end to the era of the winner-takes-all approach of first-past-the-post and ushered in an era of coalition deals and minority governments. But has it delivered? In this insight, Radio New Zealand's political reporter Julian Robbins looks at the impact of MMP on politics and government in New Zealand. When voters go to the polls on November the 26th, they won't just be voting for their local MP and preferred political party. They'll also be asked in a referendum whether or not New Zealand should continue to use MMP to elect their MPs. The questioning of the MMP system comes almost 20 years after voters decided to drop first-past-the-post. The former National Party Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, says it was a change brought on by a growing sense of that system's unfairness. There had been this 20-plus percent of the vote who voted for two or three different parties, the social creditors at the time were the big um, vote gatherers, who got one or two seats. Maximum they ever got in Parliament was two seats. I think their highest vote was 21 percent. Now, that didn't make sense. That wasn't representative democracy, which we're talking about. So change was necessary. It was under his watch that New Zealand moved to MMP, with its two votes and a mix of electorate and list MPs. Pressure for changes to the voting system had been building since the release of the 1986 Royal Commission report towards a better democracy. The New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters championed MMP and argues it was a reaction to the radical agendas and broken promises of the 1984 to 1990 Labour government and the first term under Jim Bolger. It was a vote for change because if you could so dramatically under first past the post without hindrance and not with a majority of the vote, that's 50% of the vote, get away with that, the people had decided there was a time for a change. And despite there being a massive campaign to retain first past the post where all the money was poured in, the people said no. The mood for change was strong, with 85% of those who voted in a non-binding referendum in 1992 wanting to change the existing system. In the lead-up to the second binding referendum to pick between MMP and first-past-the-post, debate was intense. We believe voting for MMP is gambling with our country's future. Our children could pay the price. Is it a risk we can afford? Tick the top box. Reject MMP. The campaign for better government, led by Wellington businessman Peter Shirtcliffe, threw hundreds of thousands of dollars into an anti-MMP advertising campaign. But in 1993, voters opted to replace First Past the Post with MMP by 54% to 46. Hey, Aunt Dolly, you know how we get two votes with MMP? One for a party, one for a person. Yes, dear. Well, what's the party vote all about? MMP represented a profound change and ushered in a brave new world of multi-party government, coalitions and party lists. All of a sudden, minor parties mattered. If one party gets a quarter of all the party votes, then they get a quarter of all the seats in Parliament. And so on, until all 120 seats are shared out. So the party votes decide the share of all the seats in Parliament. Oh, you're on to it, Wall. No, Wallace, that slice belongs to one of the smaller parties. MMP. It takes just two ticks. MMP effectively put an end to the comfortable two-party monopoly of the previous 60 years. In the 15 years since the first MMP election, New Zealand has largely been ruled by minority governments that must seek a majority in Parliament for legislation on a case-by-case -case basis. 
Long-time critic of MMP, the executive director of the Business Roundtable, Roger Kerr, believes the system has hurt the country and the economy by denying any government the strength to make unpopular decisions. Governments have not found it possible to take stronger measures when clearly the problems have been accumulating and I think they need a good base to do that and they have to be concerned every day with an MMP parliament as to whether they've got a majority uh, in the House. A majority in the House though is reflective of the majority of votes that were cast so Surely that's just democracy in action. Well, you can say that in terms of the process, MMP could be argued to be a more representative process, but in terms of representative outcomes, i.e. what the voters really want, I think that's much more debatable. I doubt if many of the public at the moment are terribly comfortable about the country's economic position, and I think they would be wanting to see the government take stronger action to improve it. But just how credible is it to claim the electoral system has a major impact on economic performance? Winston Peters is scathing of Mr Kerr's claims. How does he explain these leading countries in a very cold and often inclement climate such as Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland? And they are standout performers. His statements simply don't bear examination. Meanwhile, first past the post, in Europe led to the sick man of Europe, the UK. Compare the UK's last 40 years of growth with, say, a system of proportional representation such as an island. So what criteria should MMP be judged by? A professor of political science at Victoria University, Nigel Roberts, is assisting the Electoral Commission's public education campaign for this year's referendum. Does the electoral system produce an effective government, a government that has a basis of stability, is able to implement its policy program, and has reasonable continuity? But likewise, a competing criterion is fairness to political parties. Does the electoral system see parties represented in the House of Representatives in rough proportion to the shares of the votes that they got? Or does it discriminate against some parties and uh, in favour of other parties? And people have to ask, well, what's particularly important to them? The leader of the Labour Party, Phil Goff, says deciding whether to retain MMP is a question for voters. But he's backing MMP because he believes it's a fair system. From our perspective, we think that MMP has worked better, and it's worked better predominantly for this reason, that no matter where you live in the, in the country, your vote is of equal worth with everybody else's. In the past, if you were in a safe Labour or a safe national seat and you weren't off the persuasion of a majority, your vote uh, was effectively discounted. If you lived in a marginal seat, your vote was far more valuable. And that meant that there was a lot of pork barrelling around marginal seats, which wasn't fair to the wider New Zealand population. I think most New Zealanders regard it as fundamentally fair to say that if you get 40% of the vote, then you get 40% of the seats in Parliament. And Phil Goff says MMP has proved itself over the last 15 years. Both uh, under Labour-led and national-led governments, we've essentially uh, had a stable system where governments generally haven't been forced to go to polls earlier than usual any more than they were under the previous system. Have we had greater diversity of representation in Parliament? Yes, more points of view represented there. Uh, Have we had the opportunity for people that may have a lot to offer Parliament but might not want to work through the electorate voting system but can be put on a list, can come into Parliament and can offer 
value to the Institute of Parliament, yes, I think all of those things have been advantages. But for MMP critic Jordan Williams, the spokesperson of the recently created group Vote for Change, it is accountability that's all important. Vote for Change launched late last month with an initial membership of about 100, including Peter Shercliffe. The group has yet to endorse an alternative system, but Jordan Williams says the real advantage of first-past-the-post was the ease with which voters could kick politicians out once they passed their use-by date. We want more accountability. We want a system whereby you go into the polling booth on election day and you know what you're voting for. At every single MMP election, the whole nation's gone to bed wondering what the politicians will come up with a week later when they get around to forming a government. We think that's unfair. We think that it puts too much power in the hands of whatever party holds that balance, that 5 to 10%, and we think that that power to choose who should be government should be in the power of New Zealanders. All sides agree that MMP has resulted in greater diversity within Parliament, with more women, Māori and ethnic minority MPs. But Jordan Williams and Vote for Change are more interested in the makeup of the government than Parliament. There is a bidding process after each election whereby the two large parties bid for and in closed-door negotiations arrange the government. What Vote for Change believe in is New Zealanders should be the ones to determine who governs. So governments are held accountable to their platforms and what they stand for rather than this matrix form of governments we're getting which makes it very difficult to hold politicians accountable because they can just blame their coalition partners. Jim Bolger echoes some of Vote for Change's concerns. He believes MMP has weakened accountability. We, the average voter, has transferred a lot of power now to the political leadership. And by doing that, with a list which you have under MMP, a long list, you transfer also a lot of power to the party leaders or the party bosses, the organisational structure of the party, because they select the list. The actual voter has been moved quite a substantial distance away from the final decisions now. I tried to explain that many times before the 93 referendum. Nobody was a blind bit interested in it. Uh, they didn't like the politicians. I'm not sure they still liked them, according to a recent policy. But they, uh, they thought they were getting a better deal for them as voters. In fact, they got a poorer deal. But Sandra Gray from the campaign for MMP defends the often maligned party list. She says not only have the lists delivered greater diversity, they've also been used to bring in specialist skills and knowledge. The questions we're hearing are, should the public have more say in the lists because they're chosen by a small you know, group in the, in the political parties who determine the lists? Well, the public also have to remember the people who stand in the electorates are chosen by a small number of people in political parties as well. And maybe what we're saying as a population is we need to get more engaged in those political parties and have more say. The National MP, Murray McCulley, has served under both MMP and First Past the Post. He believes MMP makes it harder for the public to know what they're voting for. I think um, we've become less accountable in this sense, that um, you now have a, a back door available as a political party. Under MMP you're able to say, well look, that's what I wanted to do, but because I didn't get 50% of the vote, I wasn't able to put in place what my manifesto said. Uh, so the essential trade-offs that are in the nature of MMP do provide a reasonably ready excuse for political parties that haven't done what they said they were going to do. In fact, Roger Kerr claims MMP virtually requires political parties to break their word in the interests of doing deals and building majorities.
promise breaking is a very bad situation in a democracy, but a proportional system like MMP almost institutionalises promise breaking. Uh, parties can go into an election with a particular set of policies, but they have to uh, compromise on them. They have to break some promises in order to form a governing coalition. That view is rejected by one of MMP's success stories, the Greens. Since first being elected to Parliament under its own banner in 1999, the Green Party has been the only small party to consistently attract more than 5% of the party vote. Its co-leader, Matilia Ture, says first-past-the-post in no way guaranteed transparency. I don't think that is a reality, that there's a, a single agenda that's put to the voters and that that's what they vote for and that's what they get. I don't think it's ever been a reality. That in fact, there's been significant change to political agendas. Parties under first-past-the-post have not always been completely honest about what their agenda is and have surprised voters with the results. Um, so I think that's a, a fallacy that pro-first-past-the-post people put out but was never actually real. Matiria Ture maintains that National and Labour have been only too happy to use their smaller support parties as the fall guys. I think we've seen large parties allow small parties to take the hit for things that they would like to do but don't want to be responsible for. Um, the most recent example would be the foreshore and seabed legislation with National and the Māori Party and I think with the Auckland uh, reorganisation with National and the ACT Party. So far, every minor party that's gone into government or entered a confidence and supply support arrangement with a major party has suffered at the next election. In the first MMP parliament, the pressures of governing split New Zealand first in two, and the alliance imploded just before the 2002 election. In 2005, United Future saw one MP peel off to stand as an independent, then shrank from eight MPs to three at the election. And at the 2008 election, after three years supporting Labour, New Zealand First disappeared from Parliament altogether when its support fell short of the 5% threshold needed to make it into Parliament without winning an electorate. The Greens, though, have escaped such a backlash by never going into government. The Greens have had a range of different political relationships with Labour and with National now, from a memorandum of understanding to um, a cooperation agreement with um, government spokespeople. So we have explored different ideas for how to use the relationship with government to get good policy through and retain your independence and, um, and a strong support base. Um, I think that other parties are struggling to learn those lessons as well. But opponents of MMP argue the system delivers too much power into the hands of minor parties, the so-called tail-wagging-the-dog syndrome. Jordan Williams believes the last 15 years have clearly demonstrated that small parties can force major parties to implement policies they would otherwise never dream of in return for their support. It's not just tail wagging the dog, it's these bizarre public policy outcomes. I mean, look at uh, New Zealand First, its last coalition with the Labour Party. One of its key outputs was um, putting the racing industry and in a charitable status. I mean, that was clearly for the advantage of New Zealand First's donors and all politicians, not for the good of New Zealand. Notable third-party policy wins include Kiwi Bank for the Alliance, the repeal of the super surtax for New Zealand First, the creation of the Families Commission as part of Labour's 2002 deal with United Future, and the review of the Foreshore and Seabed Act for the Māori Party. The United Future leader and sole MP Peter Dunn makes no apologies for the policy wins secured by supporting parties.
On the whole, the various support parties over the years have been pretty wary about the tail wagging the dog syndrome. They've tended in their agreements to look for particular, dare I use the word, trophies, focus on achieving those, and then seek to play a broadly constructive role in government aside from that. So they can go back to their constituencies and say, look, we got A, B, C and D, but we didn't rock the boat, we didn't upset the apple cart, we allowed government to function. And I think the public tolerate that, but where the small party is really holding the show to ransom and saying, you know, if, you, if we don't get this, then we're walking out of here, uh, I think public tolerance for that's pretty short. Peter Dunn believes MMP is still evolving, with each new parliament adapting the system to suit its needs. Things that were previously seen as almost no-go areas, you can move into quite quickly. I mean, for instance, how do you involve ministers from support parties, technically not part of the government, in the budget forming process? That would have been a, almost a constitutional no-no a few years ago. It now happens as a matter of course, and those ministers and the government ministers have both felt increasingly comfortable with that process. So I think this is evolutionary, and I, I don't think that the fears of the business sector that this would paralyse government or lead to a lack of decisive action or whatever have been realised. But Roger Kerr from the Business Roundtable begs to differ. He's convinced that MMP, with its multi-party negotiations and inevitable compromise, shortchanges the country. It makes for weaker government. Remember, of course, that uh, the United States imposed MMP on Germany after the Second World War because they didn't want a strong government there again. And it therefore makes it more difficult for New Zealand governments to react to economic circumstances when they need to, um, more compromise, slower decision-making, and also a tendency towards bigger government. That's well substantiated in the economic research as uh, parties do deals with each other at the taxpayer's expense. But what Roger Kerr sees as weak government, Sandra Gray from the Campaign for MMP sees as a check on the power of the Cabinet and the government. She argues that proportional representation has strengthened the role of Parliament. For a country that has only one level of government, it does really provide for you a system in which Parliament has a very active role in governing, um, a very active role. And while some people don't like the idea of a strong Parliament, for me that's really important because you don't want a government that can go off and hurriedly make legislation without having to consider a broad range of views. And MMP certainly provides that check and balance that other systems get from having a second house or from having a, another layer of government. Sandra Gray says voters could deliver a single party a majority under MMP if they wanted to. And she maintains the Cabinet and the Government remain fundamentally strong. Governments still dominate the, the parliamentary agenda. And so I think that, you know, we still see very strong government in New Zealand when it's desired. So I, I don't think there's any real doom for those that want strong government, um, for those that want a little bit more slower legislation, a little bit more carefully considered legislation, I think there's still some work to be done on making sure that happens. So just how different is the process of government under MMP? And does it make the sort of radical change pushed through in the Rogernomics era of the fourth Labour government impossible? Phil Goff says multi-party government is inevitably more complicated. Oh, it was undoubtedly easier to progress your legislation under first-past-the-post because you in most instances had a very clear majority and you could go ahead, I think Geoffrey Palmer once termed it, we were the fastest lawmakers in the West. That did not necessarily make the law that was passed good law. 
and the public of New Zealand determined that after the experience in the 80s and the 90s, they wanted more constraints on the government so that the government could be held more accountable and could be made more responsive. And I think to a degree, uh, MMP has done that because a government has to go out and negotiate for the policies that it wants to put in place. And if it has a mandate for those policies, because it stood on those policies at the last election, then that negotiation process uh, is, is so much easier, because the mandate is there and obvious. But if they have no mandate, for example increasing GST when you promise not to, uh, that should make it harder. Winston Peters, twice a minister under MMP and once under First Past the Post, believes proportional representation has constrained the power of the Cabinet. Nothing in terms of political promises uh, is ever the nirvana that is promised, but it's far closer to what people want and a far greater restraint on the executive or a small cabal within a country, usually a business or union section, dominating a small group within side politics. That is severely handicapped and hindered, and most would say for the right reasons. But major policy changes, and at times radical legislation, can still be passed. The last year has seen Parliament grant the government sweeping powers to respond to the Christchurch earthquakes. And as Peter Dunn points out, the last two governments have introduced ambitious reforms. Both the tax changes in last year's budget and the introduction of KiwiSaver involved negotiation with a range of partners. In both instances, the government of the day, one Labour-led, one National-led, was able to make fundamental and profound change fairly quickly. They were done under multi-party MMP governments. I don't, you know, I don't see the problem. The systems developed the capacity to adapt and to make things work. And both were done without an election mandate. They were new policy. That's right. They were new policies. Uh, they were done both in very short spaces of time. But MMP is not all cooperation and consensus particularly in the debating chamber. We do have a plan. The government's more than happy to table the plan once more. It's called the budget. Twenty years ago, there were bold predictions that proportional representation would result in a kinder, gentler style of politics. MMP supporter Sandra Gray admits that's a work in progress. For example, we've seen very good collaboration between National and the Greens over very specific issues. Now, under First Past the Post, that would never have happened, not just because the Greens wouldn't have been there, but because the, the major parties wouldn't have thought to have done deals with anyone who was either an independent or a minor from a third or minor party. In terms of the behaviour in, in the House, it takes a long time to convince long-standing politicians, and we've got to remember we still have a few people who were MPs before MMP came in in the House of Representatives, and I think it takes a long time to change culture in a place like Parliament. And one of those former first-past-the-post MPs, Murray McCulley, says expectations of more consensus and less conflict under MMP were always unrealistic. Yeah, they weren't really voting for a consensual style of system at all. What they were voting for was a bunch of power brokers uh, making on behalf of political parties, engaging in deal-making. That's what MMP was always going to deliver. It was going to mean that smaller parties had more leverage, but it was going to uh, eradicate the days in which uh, major political parties had a, a winner-takes-all outcome uh, despite a minority of, of the vote. As well as deciding whether New Zealand should change the voting system from MMP, this year's referendum will ask voters to select which of four systems they would prefer, one of which would run off against MMP in a second referendum if voters opt for change. First past the post is the simplest system on offer. 
Like under all of the alternatives, Parliament would have 120 MPs, but they would all have to win an electorate by securing the most votes in their seat. It's a system voters rejected in 1993, and Winston Peters, for one, believes its day is past. When you can go on for decade after decade with minority government as first past the post was, where you could win with less than 39% of the vote, then there's something wrong about the quality of that democracy. Now, I'm not saying MMP is the perfect answer, but as Churchill would say, it's better than all the rest. Under the second system, preferential voting, all MPs must win an electorate and must receive more than 50% of the vote. Voters rank candidates in order of preference, and if there's no clear winner, the lowest polling candidate drops out and their second preference votes are distributed to the remaining candidates until someone gets a clear majority. The third system, Single Transferable Vote, or STV, is also electorate-based, and again, voters rank candidates in order of preference. But instead of picking just one local MP, voters elect between three and seven per seat, with about 30 seats nationwide. The final alternative is supplementary member, the system favoured by the former Prime Minister, Jim Bolger. Should we have more of our members elected directly by the public at large? I believe yes. So I'd support a supplementary member where the list is shorter and therefore the public have a greater say in the composition of the parliament and you can still recognise or smaller parties can still get into parliament. And this seems to me to be a sensible compromise that in fact acknowledges that the degree of proportionality is wise and sensible and proper but also that as far as possible the voice of the people should be the determinant of how the government is made. Under supplementary member there would be 90 electorate seats. There'd still be a party vote, but it would only decide a party's share of 30 list seats. So if a party secured 20% of the list vote, it would get just six seats under supplementary member, compared with 24 under MMP. The campaign for MMP spokesperson Sandra Gray says that would hand more power back to the major parties. It doesn't treat any of the parties as fairly. Um, as MMP does and there is a sense you know of all the things people really like about MMP when we talk to them it is that idea of kind of the fairness that is a proportional system okay I really get the idea people say that you know quarter of the votes go to that party they get a quarter of the seats in the house that seems fair let's stick with it and supplementary member would never deliver that. But none of supplementary member, STV, preferential voting or first-past-the-post will make it out of the starting blocks if voters opt to retain MMP. Polling over the last six months has put support for keeping the system at about 50%, with about 40% wanting change. Professor Nigel Roberts is watching with interest to see if the future of MMP sparks a major public debate. One variable that leads to kind of pressure in democratic societies for electoral system change is the unpopularity of governments. If governments are not producing the goods, if there seems to be a disconnect, if voters feel alienated. So the irony is that National, having promised and implemented a referendum, is now running so popularly that I don't uh, necessarily think there's uh, much concern. But we're going to have a campaign, so there is time for people to think and kind of give it some decent thought. But Nigel Roberts says even a vote for the status quo is likely to result in changes to the electoral system. Even if the electorate votes 
to keep MMP, then Parliament has already mandated that the Electoral Commission must independently review MMP because MMP is a concept and one of the things that it has to look at is the threshold. Must it be 5%? What about the one-seat threshold? What about the lists? Uh, should there be a, an ability of voters to move people around on the list, to have open or semi-open list? Should electorate candidates also be allowed to be list candidates? In other words, I think there is concern about backdoor MPs. So I think that MMP is likely to change even if people vote for MMP. That Radio New Zealand Insight was written and presented by Julian Robbins. Produced by Philippa Tolley. Technical production by Leanne Smith.